Hi, I'm Alexander Carpenter, Executive Editor of Spectrum and host of Adventist Voices. In a minute, you'll hear my conversation with historian Michael W. Campbell, author of the new book, 1922, The Rise of Adventist Fundamentalism. But before we get to that, I just want to make a quick announcement. As you'll see on our website, Dr. Gordon Rick, who has been connected to Adventist Forum and Spectrum for half a century, has generously put up a $100,000 matching grant. It's so fun to do this work and to uh, meet people who are willing to inspire others to contribute to the mission of Spectrum and the Adventist uh, Forum as we grow the vision together. We announced this campaign about a year ago, hoping to raise a million dollars in three years, and we are very excited to announce that we've already raised $800,000. So we're way ahead of schedule. In fact, we're thinking about being able to wrap the campaign up early. So with this matching grant, um, we might be able to do it. Uh, this year, perhaps in the next couple of months. So if you would be willing to go to the website and consider donating or making a pledge for one or two years, I personally would really appreciate it. My team that uh, is very excited about reporting on the GC session for you would appreciate it. And I know the Adventist Forum Board would appreciate it as well. Thank you so much for being a part of this community. And now, my conversation with Michael W. Campbell, who is the newly appointed Director of Archives, Statistics, and Research for the North American Division of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. He has spent more than a decade teaching in higher education in Texas and the Philippines. Prior to that, he pastored in Kansas and Colorado. And most recently, he was a professor of religion at Southwestern Adventist University. I always like talking with Michael, and here is his follow-up book to his uh, blockbuster 1919 book based on his dissertation, A um, Acolyte of George Knight, historian Michael W. Campbell. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be joined by Michael W. Campbell. Thank you so much for talking with all of us today. Hey, great to be with you, Alexander. You're, uh, of course, no stranger to the Spectrum community. We've enjoyed many of your presentations at Adventist Forum meetings and at Sabbath School classes, and I am so excited to be holding up your new book here, uh, 1922, The Rise of Adventist Fundamentalism. Uh, I just read the entire thing uh, in less than a day, and I'm really excited about talking about it with you. Generally, how does it feel to have uh, done all this research and put it out into the world? Yeah, you know, it feels good. You know, you, you, this is my COVID 
baby. <laughs> <laughs> you were so productive. <laughs> so, you know, you lock a lock a scholar in uh, his home and do Zoom classes, Zoom teaching, and everything else. And so, uh, and I, I've always had an interest in 1919, but I, I wanted to kind of get the rest of the story. And so this is, um, uh, and like any project, you know, there's always some more, there's more that you'd like to include, but I feel a, a sense of satisfaction that, hey, it's finally together, it's out there, and uh, looking forward to, you know, conversations. Hopefully this will create co uh, constructive conversations. Well, it definitely um, gave me lots of questions that I'm looking forward to asking you. And maybe let's start out with defining uh, a big term here, fundamentalism. How do you define it? How did Adventists think of it back then as well? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a great, uh, it's, it's a complex term, right? And, and words have different meanings that change over time. So we have to acknowledge that. But again, I'm a, I'm a historian, I'm, I'm approaching this from that vantage point. And so I'm looking at it from a distinctly uh, historical viewpoint, that uh, here is a unique movement that takes place in the early 20th century with antecedents through the 19th century, but really takes a tangible form the early first few decades of the 20th century within American Christianity. Again, that's not to say that there aren't other permutations in other parts of the world, but but again, this is at, at its, uh, uh, this is its the, the high point. Uh, and so, and it's a reaction. So uh, there's change and what historians do is we like to ch study change over time. And so we, we see how Adventism's changing. We see how American culture, American religion's changing. And they're probably the paramount changes are questions uh, related to, to modernism. I mean, obviously everyone is modernist. They're working from modernist assumptions, but, uh, but these questions about the validity of inspired writings, uh, miracles, the efficacy of the atonement, uh, a literal creation being challenged by evolution. How do we how do we interpret the Bible? Even you know, so all of those things and the uh, conservative Christians kind of doubled down, uh, and the the term really comes from these pamphlets that are published from 1910 to 1915. Twelve uh, pamphlets, widely distributed, called the Fundamentals. So there you have it. Uh, and so and, and of course initially it's a pejorative term. Uh, but but it's quickly adopted by the fundamentalists as a rallying cry, Curtis Lee Laws and, and others that, hey, here's this, uh, we need to, um, and, and some people have described that fundamentalism is less a theology than it is a mentality. So it's mm -hmm. a sort of militant uh, resistance to uh, these kinds of changes and a, a defense, a militant defense of the faith. And so, uh, that's really what you're seeing, uh, and in part of the context, uh, the 1910 uh, teens there is World War One, right? So you also have this militarization of this world global conflict that is increasingly escalating and is cause for a more, shall we say, militant uh, kind of Christianity. Yeah, you use that term militant, it's aggressive, it's reactionary to, mm -hmm. as you put, modernism. So, you know, you share a really interesting later um, anecdote from a or a story from uh, a story about a young Adventist who is sort of excited about his faith and then goes off to uh, college and begins to question. And the, that's the kind of the that's the the tension writ large is that you have um, these these this 
for lack of a better word, Darwinism, and then you have critique of the Bible, and you also have uh, changes in people's kind of home life. So yeah. right there, you have you you talk about um, the Nineteenth Amendment, and suddenly women have the right to vote in America, and that raises questions about power um, yeah. and gender. And so there's all these destabilizing forces. It, it struck me to, uh, in similar ways to the way the term wokeness gets deployed, where um, there's folks who feel like things are changing in so many ways. People have awakened to new realities that are threatening our current reality. So the Adventists are quite um, comfortable with the fundamentalist dialogue. Um, even though they don't always fit in, thanks to our distinctive beliefs. Can you talk about some of the, the conference, the, the statements that start to emerge? In what ways does Advent, do Adventist leaders, thought leaders, writers, as well as political leaders, start to uh, become fellow travelers with the emerging fundamentalists? Yeah, great, great questions. You know, I, I think a big part of it is having a common enemy. Mm. So, you know, they kind of see themselves... Uh, postured in a similar kind of trajectory. So if, if they're questioning, you know, the inspiration of the Bible, what Adventists are really worried about is if you question that, uh, if you question a literal creation, then you're probably going to uh, question a literal second coming, right? So, and you throw the second coming away, then you've, what, what's left of Adventist theology? And so, uh, so Adventists immediately see themselves in a, in a, an affinity. I think it's less theological because you, you hardly see any Adventists, um, really talking about the fundamentals, those pamphlets as they're published. You do see some later references to them, but it's, it's by and large. And I, I kind of wondered, and this was right towards the end as I was finishing off my book, I, I stumbled on, how uh, Ruben Torrey, who was one of the main editors of the Fundamentals, had had a tango with A.T. Jones, and that did not go well, and he wrote a, a pamphlet attacking Adventism. So I think a lot of Adventists probably had that in their mind, you know, this Ruben Torrey guy, watch out for him, right? <laughs> uh, and, and where you see the connecting affinity is really these prophecy conferences that happen in and around uh, World War I, which are celebrated by the Adventists. These are the most significant events by, you know, F.M. Wilcox, the editor of the review, uh, and in all of church history, right up there with Luther's 95 theses. So, um, and even the 1919 Bible Conference, I think you could make a, a very strong, or I try to make a strong case in my 1919 book, is, is modeled after these prophecy conferences. And it's as they debate and fight over the interpretation of prophecy that they have to, you know, these hermeneutical battles and battle lines emerge and the authority of Ellen White's writings, all of this, uh, which is what 1919 is so famous for. Uh, but clearly they see themselves in in harmony because because there is no other option. You look at all the literature, it's either that, which that's crazy from their viewpoint, right? We would never do that. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, it's intriguing, you know, I mean, the one criticism of my 1919 book that I, I did get was that, well, you know, I, I, I give all the fundamentalists a hard time, so therefore I must be a modernist. And that's just absurd because um, that's to not acknowledge history as it was. I, Alex, where, where are the modernists in Adventism in the 19-teens <laughs> and 1920s? It's not, they're not there. They're not there because Adventists don't see themselves 
in that manner. And so as they align with this wider cultural, religious uh, milieu, um, uh, they, they fall in step. And, and of course, not everything fits for Adventism. That's why I call it Adventist fundamentalism, because they, they appropriate some of this wider movement within an Adventist context, rhetoric, all of that, that begins to make it its own kind of, um, way of thinking. Uh, and, and that's, that's significant. And, and obviously there's parallels throughout history. I mean, we're talking about today and you mentioned wokeness, right? So, um, in this sort of cancel culture that a lot of people, um, are debating and talking about it, it, it raises these same kinds of issues of change. How do we deal with change? How to respond to the wider culture? Uh, and I, I certainly don't like to get into like presentism because history is complex. It's never the same, but it is interesting and a little bit ironic that a hundred years later, it does seem like we're wrestling with the same kinds of issues. And not just because we've also lived through a pandemic, uh, which I thought was very interesting and historically, uh, significant. You make some great parallels, uh, subtly through your historiography here. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it, it is is true. And, you know, when I when I was doing my dissertation, <laughs> dissertation research and the whole influenza thing of 1918, 1919, I thought, man, you know, that's probably gonna be the most boring part of my research. And, <laughs> and in the last like two, three years, suddenly all this research uh, has 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 a usefulness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it does change. It does add, uh, you know, I wouldn't say direct change, but it does. Um, it, it's interesting to see the changes that come out of these big moments in yeah. in, um, in a generation's uh, story that they're telling. Yeah. You, by, by um, the way, I want to throw yeah. in there the one big difference, though, between 1918, 1919, the influenza is Adventists are largely pretty much uniform in saying vaccines are a good thing. And, and that's not you can't say the same thing about today. So yeah. that's, that's a contrast I, I find very um intriguing yeah i think a historian 100 years from now is going to have fun analyzing what was going on with those adventist anti-vaxxers have mercy (laughs) (laughs) so um in addition to telling a good story here you do some really interesting historical research that i wasn't aware of before and you helped me really understand the 28 fundamental beliefs this phenomenon that you know, we're used to starting that story generally in the late 70s, early 80s. And the other part that we're used to saying is people who don't like fundamental beliefs, I include myself in that category to some degree, although I really enjoyed reading your your the, your appendix, uh, got me excited because they do tell an interesting story about the people who craft them and what they're thinking about. But it's usually... Um, told vis-a-vis um, the idea of creeds. And so, you know, there's a good history of Adventists being anti-creedal. Um, you actually helped me really understand where these fundamental beliefs come. And then there's this moment where, of course, fundamental beliefs, fundamentalist Adventists. So take us through the documents that you have in your book showing this shall we say, evolution of Adventist fundamental beliefs? 
Well, you know, uh, Alex, this is the the fun part of doing research is you find out where you've been wrong in the past, right? <laughs> and I, I've published several articles and, and even given papers. In fact, I think one of my first ASRS papers was on the development of Adventist fundamental beliefs. Hmm. And I, I did a comparison of 1872 with Smith and then 1931 in the yearbook and then, of course, 1980 and looking at the overall trajectory of Adventist theology. And I think most Adventist historians um, have, uh, those are kind of those key moments. And what I didn't realize is that, and discovered in the process of working on this book, is is there's these intermediary uh, or formative stages. And so Adventists are always, you know, hey, uh, we're, you know, from the earliest pioneers, they're, they're evangelistic, right? They're, what are they doing? They're obviously explaining Adventist beliefs, uh, uh, but, but it takes on a new form and meaning in the late teens through the 1920s, where they're engaging with the fundamentalists uh, and these statements of fundamental beliefs. And they clearly are modeling and responding to those statements by the fundamentalists. And so there's a whole series of them. There's more. I've only kind of kept it to this formative stage, but through the rest of the 1920s, there's more statements. So um, that's one of the painful things of writing a book. Sometimes you have to leave stuff out. So I think I'm ready for a trilogy. I have enough for the third volume already. Great. Uh, but you see all the way through the 20s, more statements of fundamental beliefs. And what's shocking to me is nobody's really studied these um, formative statements. And, and what's very clear to me is the statement in 1931 is basically the same statement from the statements from 1918, 1919 that I, that I talk about in my book. Obviously, it's finessed and it's just slightly tweaked, but it's the same thing. And so what, what I can show now historically is a direct lineage between our statements of fundamental beliefs and the historical fundamentalist movement. Uh, and, and that's not to say that fundamental beliefs are necessarily a bad thing, but it's to provide that historical context so we understand how it emerged and what is their unique role and purpose in, in Adventist history, right? And, and I would um, argue that when, you know, just like the earliest Adventist pioneers, if they're used in some kind of creedal-like manner, then we have some kind of problematic aspect um, that, that with these things. But, but in this case, um, in their origins, they're meant to be, um, they were developed in dialogue and tension with other Christians. Um, and so understanding that historical milieu is, is vital to understanding how Adventist fundamental beliefs. So it's almost as if, if the 1931 statement is this tabla rasa out of nowhere, it just came out magically, right? <laughs> and and so uh, what I, what's, and I think one reason a lot of people have missed it is, is you look for, and I've missed it in the past, is you look for one, two, three, four years before that, five years before that, through the 20s, the late 20s, and, and, um, and here it is all the way back to right after 1919, right yeah. after the 1919 Bible conference. And so you have to look uh, more than a decade ahead of time and you see these statements, there they are. And there's this uh, very intriguing uh, historical lineage um, that is is vital. And by the way, I didn't put this in the book, but I just found this this week. You oh, find great, this, breaking this news. Tidbit, um, I found a statement of fundamental beliefs in, 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 in referencing the fundamentalist movement, fundamentalism, mm -hmm. and the first statement um, is that of scripture and that we believe just in line with the fundamentalists um, in the divine inerrancy of scripture. Mm 
Whoa. So this is kind of intriguing because uh, this conversation continues after my 22 book. That's mm-hmm. why I need to continue working on the 20s because here's here's all these other things. So we talk about how did Adventist fundamentalism impact? Well, eventually um, the title shift is moving towards inerrancy in the 20s. And we even see that. And these are not like obscure things. We're talking about, you know, the statement that I referred to in 29 is, is published in the review and signs of the times. Hmm. Uh, there's so many things I want to talk about, and I'm going to, we want to get to 1922, which is obviously right. the title of the book, and importantly, this, this clash of um, actually varieties of fundamentalism in a way, and it's, uh, of course, uh, uh, driven by two key leaders, um, Daniels and Spicer. But before we get to that, I want to make a comment about the fun, the fundamental beliefs, because I actually really saw what you're talking about. They're an, they're an act, they're an interesting record of a story, which is they, that Adventists felt like we can't hang out with the modernists. We feel like we fit with the fundamentalists. The fundamentalists didn't always think that the Adventists were cool enough to join right. the crowd. And so, you, put it. <laughs> and, and there's a couple of reasons why that I really appreciated you putting, pointing out in your book. So I'd love to get your comment on this. One, Trinity issues. And so you see language changing in Adventist beliefs so that they can seem more like mainstream fundamentalists. Um, and then the other thing I noticed is just like that first uh, statement is just, I counted, I think there's like five references to like, prophecy 1844 like things that you oh, and and even later there's language around the sabbath at, you know the falseness of sunday worship and you know you can't just you can't arrive at your next bible your 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 world conference on fundamentals with that statement in tow and expect to be <laughs> slapped on the back by all these very inerrant <laughs> fun Sunday keeping folks. So I, I really like that you're telling this story and you can see Adventists, not unlike what was happening in the fifties, you know, thinking, Hey, why? Like we have more enemies outside of Christianity, dear Christian brothers and sisters, let us get to know you a little bit better. And Adventists are really trying to understand distinctives within the distinctives. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I see the whole 19 teens and 20s, this whole thing with fundamentalism is sort of like a dry run or a practice run for setting the stage for the 1950s with QOD. Anyways, you're going to say something. No, no, I uh, just wanted to point that out. And if you have some comments on that, do so. But in the context of some characters that you uh, really give life to, I didn't realize that William Jennings Bryan was so popular with Adventists. 500 mentions you detail he's a cover boy in adventist publications and also let's talk a little bit about george mccready price because um you are really pointing out that he was doing that he was kind of that one guy who got popular outside adventism in a way because of his you know staunch geological work uh, supporting um, a literal six-day creation. 
Yeah, so much to, to tackle there. Wow. Uh, but, but yeah, so yeah, George McCready Price. I actually have a, a, a friend of mine that's uh, studying at Oxford and his major professor is, is working on um, the Oxford Handbook of Fundamentalism mm -hmm. and mentioned that George McCready Price is, is a Seventh-day Adventist and he had no idea. So even to this day, you have a lot of um, major scholars, shall we say, that work in the field, uh, in this particular field, and, and, and don't realize those kinds of connections with Adventism, but but they're there. And so uh, the, basically I, I, what I see is Adventists see themselves as the true fundamentalists or the, the phrase that I love is the fundamentalists of the fundamentalists. Uh, because if they took a plain reading of the Bible and of creation seriously, they would have to accept the Seventh-day Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Now, Tory's response in critiquing them as well, a plain reading of the Bible of Colossians 2, 16 and 17, you'd have to accept Sunday. So this kind of back and forth uh, that, that, that yeah. they're having, um, and clearly that keeps them at odds. That's why in my 1919 book, I call it Adventist flirtation with fundamentalism because it, 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 they clearly want to be part of the cool kids, but they just can never quite make it because they're, they have these unusual apocalyptic ideas and the seventh day Sabbath. And they, I don't think they ever really get to Ellen White, but that would probably sure, I'm sure would be a turnoff for the, for this wider fundamentalist movement, but, but here it is. And so, uh, uh, and I think this is probably one of the unique contributions of, of Adventism to fundamentalism. I know some have explored it. There's a, a Ron Numbers has written about it in The Creationist. Um, there's been a recent, I think it's in Church History, a, a journal article highlighting the contributions even more of George McCready Price. But even still, I don't think, and it's not just George McCready Price, but all the way back to like 1905, 1906, 1907, you have Adventists fighting against the new theology and doubling down on a literal creation. So the literal creation along with um, the apocalyptic, the second advent, those two things being having to be literal um, are vital to Adventist self-understanding and identity, which become connecting links to fundamentalism, at least from an Adventist viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And they have to protect that that is at, at all costs, which is why William Jennings Bryan comes along. He's popular. Uh, there's this wave of, uh, shall we call it, Christian nationalism going on. Yeah. And within that, it you know, Adventists are excited. They, they want to show that they're uh, that, that, that they are normative. And here's this, uh, uh, you know, politician of the people. And uh, he seems to align with some of their uh, common interests. Uh, and so Adventists are really, really excited. This is probably one of the most surprising things of reading through the review and signs, you know, page by page, slowing down and trying to just absorb all of this uh, was just how much uh, Brian is, as you said, this this kind of poster boy. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I was just shocked how many times he's on the cover of the review uh what five or six times i think it is off the top of my head but and let's you remind know, you that would be like yeah. putting the you know that would be like putting recent nominees for president on the cover of the Adventist review while they're running i just can't imagine that today yeah, yeah. over yeah. and over again for political office yeah um so let's get to the uh, core uh, tension in this story that you uh, bring out, which is that there's there's Adventism is battling change, but there's change coming within. 
and Daniel mm -hmm. stands there uh, at the 1922 general conference session, having been in office for 21 years, a strong leader, as you put it, emphasis on strong. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that he has made enemies, enemies who are inerrantists, not just for the Bible, but for Ellen White. Tell us about these two figures who have really no actual power in the Adventist structure, but not unlike what we've seen in like the self-supporting world, they emerge as voices of the people and threaten Daniel's role. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, there's a mudraking uh, campaign that's going on by Washburn and Holmes. And uh, I mean, at, at times just downright salacious where they're just um, out for blood. And, uh, and, and they do it and justify it on the grounds that, you know, they're defending inspired writings. They're defending a way of thinking that is important to them. And that kind of uh, black and white, that kind of thinking, if doesn't allow for any nuance or any uh, any in between. So someone like uh, Daniels, who has a more moderate view of inspiration, is of of grave threat. And and so yeah, it's 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 utterly tragic. But I I think it's um, in, informative that here you have these two individuals that are stirring the pot. And they're not the only ones. I mean, they're the two I feature in my book. There's others that are that are causing uh, <laughs> causing trouble too at the same time. Uh, trying to get people really worked up um, about about being faithful, and th this creates this very um, tension-filled environment. Where, uh, and that's why I think this is probably uh, right up there with 1888 um, is uh, certainly one of the most uh, controversial general conference sessions in our history. You have a, a stalemate as to the future of the church, who's going to lead it, all of these things, and. You have different sides, right? I mean, what has Arthur Daniels done that's so wrong, right? I mean, he has been a good president in some ways uh, from from the viewpoint of one side. Uh, and so they don't want to see him shamed and, and pushed out by these people on the periphery, if we please, uh, that are that are just uh, causing so much um, tension and, and, and everything. Um, but yet at the same time, people also realize it is time for change too. You know, 21 years is a good run. <laughs> I don't think anyone surpassed that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so at least not yet. And so, uh, and so this is, this is the challenge is, uh, what, how, how to handle that. And that creates this very, um, tension filled environment, um, at the 22 GC. Uh, and you know, you have the official minutes, the official minutes, but, but you don't have all of the, the, you know, other GC sessions before and after you have much more extensive, unpublished, you know, have these transcripts and everything. Uh, here you have the official proceedings. And so it's more of a, it, it feels like as a historian who studied this, like an abbreviated GC session, you know, mm -hmm. here's, here's the, here's the official stuff that we're going to put out there. They, there are some, you know, references where Daniels does get up and the Spicer who replaces him and he's very gracious and everything. But but it does feel that you're not getting the full story. And, and if you look at the newspapers uh, in San Francisco, you get a little bit more of that. And you also from some of the diaries and letters, you get some of that fill in some of that picture of just how tense that particular GC session is. And so that's the that's the focal point. Um, there's nothing dramatic that happens. It's not like 1888 where this most precious message, you know, this uh, theological emphasis. There's no 
theological emphasis in the same way that anyone's presenting in 1922. But it does seem to me, and what I try to argue is 22 is a sort of uh, title shift, a turning point, where after that, where Adventist fundamentalism is in the ascendancy. Uh, so even though you have these people attacking uh, Holmes and Washburn, and I mean, it, it's it's terrible. It's terrible. You know, doing research like this, I try to track down their descendants and any descendants that I can track down and find um, want nothing to do with Adventism. So mm -hmm. it appears to me, I, I, I don't have any interviews, but I mean, it, it does stand uh, to, it rather stands out rather markedly that, uh, and there is some correspondence from Holmes's daughter, I think it is, where she's kind of like apologizing for how mean her father was to church <laughs> leaders after his death kind of thing, right? So there's uh, in, in Washburn. So um, that kind of bitter vitriol is caustic, and um, it seems to have had a very adverse effect on a, on a, on a very personal level in their families. But at the time, um, they believe they're the true progeny of Adventism. They believe that this is the way the path forward, that they are defenders of the faith, and they are um, as militant as, as they come in terms of uh, their need to attack uh, church leaders who they feel are soft on inspired writings, especially Ellen White. So um, that sets the stage for all this drama, drama, drama. Yeah. Um, and well, church leaders get tired of this. this they do. Too, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'll, before I ask you this final question, I thought that, because I want to save some of the book for folks to read on their own. Um, I wanted to mention George McCready Price because uh, yeah. in the forthcoming issue of the journal, Jim Hayward has uh, researched his descendants and he uh, so has been in contact with quite a few, including in Australia. And he's putting together a really interesting article about the sort of evolution of the family, so to speak. And it, it will mm -hmm. come with some interesting photos, some stories about uh, uh, life in Beverly Hills. So oh, I can't wait to see this. Yeah, stay tuned. Um, you write in your epilogue here, as history over the past century has demonstrated, Adventist fundamentalism, not modernism, has reliably been the key temptation that Adventism has struggled with. And the way a person understands and interprets inspired writings matters a great deal. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, there's, there's so much to unpack uh, there. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, what, what I'm concerned about, what I'm concerned about is that, um, too often, I think there's a lot of polarization that happens. And so it's kind of like, well, I'm just being faithful to the Bible. And so if you disagree with me, then you're not, you're, you're somehow less faithful. Mm -hmm. And, uh, again, you know, I think I mentioned to you before that, um, I'm interested in creating safe spaces and conversations and dialogue within Adventism and um, that it's okay for us to disagree on some things and how, how, we, how we go about doing that, whether on the local church or on a, a wider level, um, matters. And, and, I'm, uh, and, and that we have those conversations in respectful ways and, and that um, oftentimes we're more informed by our very cultural aspects, socioeconomic, all of those things than yeah. any of us would perhaps like to admit. Yeah. 
-hmm. Now we can look back after a hundred years and look back and say, um, you know, I can't believe, you know, how could they get caught up in this kind of stuff? Um, William Jennings, Bryan, or, you know, I have my article that uh, on the Ku Klux Klan in the twenties, right? And how, how did that happen? Right? Well, because they, they, they had their cultural blinders too. And if anything, history gives us, I hope, a sense of humility that, uh, you know, you look back through the past and you see those challenges and hopefully by looking through the past, those lenses that that we can um, begin to ask ourselves hard questions about the challenges we face today. Now, I want to avoid presentism that present isn't the past. Right. Sure. But but yet we can still learn and be informed by it to, to challenge ourselves and to create conversations that will uh, hopefully help us to, to understand and. And yeah, I, you know, we, what we believe and how we interpret inspired writings matters. We, we may not like to think about it in that way, but it, it can literally have life or death consequences. Yeah. I'm thinking of a family member that's uh, questioning modern medicine in the face of cancer, these kinds of things, right? Um, their hermeneutic, if you please, is, is, um, is, is a, a hermeneutic of suspicion that all modern medicine is evil. Therefore, they should treat their cancer with herbs and natural remedies. And, and I hate to say it, as a pastor, I've had to do funerals for people that, um, and I'm not saying that herbs and natural remedies and those things aren't useful and don't have a place. Um, but, but neither do I see that um, Ellen White or, or Adventist pioneers being antithetical to modern medicine either. So, uh, but again, they're approaching a very life or death situation based on whether we want to admit it or not, hermeneutics, yeah. hermeneutics, interpretive ways. And, and for them, I, you know, I respect their decision, even if I disagree with it, but um, it often comes with very real life or death consequences. Hopefully it's not that extreme most of the time. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but, but I really, uh, I do believe um, how we interpret inspired writings matters and we need to have more conversations in the church about how we're going about doing that. Um, I value the people I disagree with. I don't want people to think the same way as I do. I've been teaching the last number of years here at Southwestern. Um, and I tell my students, I don't, I don't want them to become Campbellites. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you believe and think exactly the same way I do, I will have failed as a teacher. Yeah. But if I can create spaces where we can talk about the ways that we may disagree in the way we interpret inspired writings that even if we disagree, that if we better understand one another and, and continue in a pursuit of truth, which is why I love that, you know, our first Adventist publication is called present truth that we can learn and grow together and hopefully learn and grow closer to Christ. And uh, in so doing um, uh, share a common, a commonality in terms of a, a commitment to uh, continuing to study uh, the Bible, and uh, for that matter, Ellen White's writings, so we can better appreciate our Adventist identity. Hmm. Well, it's been great talking with you, and this book truly was a uh, soup for my soul. Maybe Campbell soup? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <is> good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Definitely fed me and made me think uh, in new ways about uh, this Adventist uh, story that we're all a part of. So thank you so much. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move when the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely 